This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Great show today. I have Ambassador Christopher Hill, one of the more respected former members of America's Foreign Service. Uh, Ambassador Christopher Hill currently is the head of the Corbell School at the University of Denver. He had a long and distinguished career, though, in the Foreign Service. He was ambassador to several countries. He's probably best known for two postings, one in which he was the point person for the United States on the six-party talks about North Korea's nuclear ambitions. He also served during the Obama administration as the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. Our conversation spans the entirety of his career. We have great digressions about negotiating with Slobodan Milosevic, about ushering Likwalesa through the United States, into a meeting with Ronald Reagan, who cracked a somewhat uh, inappropriate or risque joke. And of course, we talk about negotiating with North Koreans and his time as U.S. ambassador to Iraq. I caught up with Ambassador Hill at an opportune moment. He's just completed his memoir, which is a highly anticipated foreign policy book. It's due to be published in fall, so I recommend looking out for that uh, when time comes. We spoke from his office at the University of Denver uh, on two separate occasions, so there's a little break in the middle, uh, and it's a long interview. It's a fun interview. It's an interesting interview, Uh, and here it is, my conversation with Ambassador Christopher Hill. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Is that a UN tank named Madeline? Yes, that's wonderful. You know, it's all... Uh, Kosovo or her, Bosnia? I said it to her, and I said, this is, she had just become Secretary of State back in 97. Yeah. So I sent it to her, as I said, as we don't have a picture together yet, I was wondering if you'd sign this one. <laughs> Amazing, and she uh, and you, and it's all you know. Oh, she used the wrong kind of pen, but she yeah, nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, so is it okay to sit here? Okay. Yeah, and sure. um, so what? What inspired you to write this memoir? Well, um, I wasn't really planning to write a memoir or or a book, but um, I found that when I talked to people about various issues, people would say to me you're surely going to write a book on that, aren't you? (laughs) And then I got to thinking about it. And then one person, actually Madeleine Albright, went a step further and said, I think for all of us in these jobs, it's our duty to write a book. (laughs) So uh, then I felt a little under the gun. And um, I uh, started thinking about it and didn't know where to begin. So I just wrote a story. And then I wrote another story. And before you know it, you connect them and you got... 400 pages. Were there other diplomats' memoirs that you drew upon? Uh, or like cite as inspiration? I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to scroll through. Well, the ones that are, I, I think, really amazing, are the, uh, which I don't uh, claim to have come close to, are uh, memoirs by Henry Kissinger. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think uh, the memoir. War by Holbrook. Holbrook, was, absolutely, one, yeah. absolutely, and uh, I, I knew that one very well. Yeah, uh, you're probably in it, I would imagine. I, I was yeah. in it. Uh, <laughs> And I think um, the problem with memoirs, I think, is you have to be careful not to use them as score settling, mm -hmm. uh, whether with people or with issues. Uh, I think you have to be a little detached from it. But I think it's um, interesting for readers to kind of understand uh, what you were thinking. It's funny, I remember reading Bolton's memoir when it was published, and, and he used it to settle some scores with you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well you're in the East Asia with a era, sample of yeah. his customary charm, <laughs> yeah. he, um, I think he had, first of all, I think the title was something was, like, we, uh, Surrender is Not an Option, an option. Yes. <laughs> um, which yeah. I think he yeah. meant toward his adversaries, that yeah. is, he had to defeat uh, people rather than allow like them you to were surrender. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, I was one of them. And then, yeah. of course, uh, um, Cheney uh, writes a uh, a memoir in which he has a whole chapter devoted to blasting Condi and me. Mm -hmm. So I have some fun with him because uh, I actually participated in a meeting in the Oval Office uh, where the subject was nuclear weapons. And where the vice president uh, fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, so where? Uh, so, so let's. I mean, let's start from the beginning. Where? Where are you from? Where? How did you first become interested in, in foreign policy? And oh, it goes way goes way back. My dad was in the foreign service. Okay. Were you born in the United States? No, I was actually born? born on my father's uh, third assignment, which was in Paris. Okay. He had been assigned to Antwerp, then assigned to Budapest. Uh, 1949, and then assigned to Paris in 51, and I came along a year later. So you decided not to kind of go the opposite route and, and sort of rebel against your uh, your parents. And that's a, that happens. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, none of my kids has been especially interested yeah. in the foreign service. That happens, and uh, I think it was happening to me until I joined the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I uh, in fact, I describe this in my book. I. I realized, you know, there I was out in rural Cameroon, which is a small country in West Africa. And essentially, uh, I realized I was representing my country, and people were very interested in what my country had to say about things. So um, I took the Foreign Service exam while I was in the Peace Corps. So what, um, as you, to, to go back to, to talk about sort of what drove you to the Peace Corps, you were living all over the world, presumably? Yeah, as, as a, a kid. And then I uh, kind of settled down a little by mm -hmm. going to school and uh, high school in um, Providence, Rhode Island, and mm -hmm. junior high school in Washington, high school in Providence, and then I went to Bowdoin College in Maine. And is there, I mean, like, the, like what did you perceive as the culture of the Foreign Service of your father's generation? I mean, that's pretty... A little the, bit. How old is the Foreign Service? I mean, it can't be... I mean, it, well, it stretches had, back a long time, but it, it, it sort of started to explode right after the uh, Second World War, right? Yeah, uh, I think that's fair mm -hmm. to say, but maybe even, you know, in, in the 20th century mm -hmm. as the United States began to embrace uh, um, a world uh, view. But uh, I want to stress that the Foreign Service has been around a long time mm -hmm. uh, since, um, basically since uh, Jefferson and Franklin. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, what is interesting, of course, is uh, anyone who's ever attended a Marine Corps ball um, uh, talks about the, uh, or gives a speech at a Marine Corps ball, talks about the Marines having uh, protected embassies uh, since uh, the 19th century, and uh, in one case rescuing uh, U.S. Foreign Service officers in places like Tripoli back in the 19th century. So it's, it goes back. Mm -hmm. 
so what made you want to go to uh, the Peace Corps? Um, I was in uh, college. I didn't want to go on to grad school at that time. Uh, I didn't want to just take a job as an undergraduate somewhere in the States. And so the idea of um, going off on an adventure in the Peace Corps and uh, um, managing something was uh, pretty so exciting. So you said you was Cameroon? So um, what you, in those days, you'd apply to the Peace Corps, you'd wait a couple of months, and finally they'd give you a couple of, of possibilities. And uh, uh, I think one was in Southeast Asia and the other was in Cameroon. And uh, in Cameroon, because I had studied economics, uh, this one was kind of interesting because I'd be uh, auditing and supervising cr- rural credit unions. Okay. So um, they gave me a Suzuki 125 dirt bike uh, and a list of 28 credit unions in the region. Uh, yeah. And I had a hand-adding machine that I strapped to the back of the bike and uh, went around auditing the books. And what, uh, what, I guess, what was, what, what did you discover when, when you were looking at well, I discovered credit unions? Well, I discovered that people are not indifferent to the United States, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized that... Uh, you have a big responsibility being American overseas. Secondly, I discovered that um, you can do a lot of good if you care enough and have enough passion about what you're doing. Um, and I also discovered that you ought to be careful about how you dispense advice. And, uh, in fact, I described this story in my book of, uh, of going to a credit union that had a lot of problems, and I told the people that uh, the board of... Uh, uh, directors such as they were in this rural credit union were misbehaving and then I said you need to get rid of them and then I had a, uh, a new board for them to select and they all thanked me, they're very grateful for what I did and then they proceeded to select the old board and so I realized that um, you know, sort of like an choosing, sort of thing. well or there are other reasons for people's loyalties uh, and so um, I took that lesson for the rest of my career meaning that it's not easy to choose someone else's leaders for them. And uh, the essence of it is really people have to make their own choices. So Cameron, I mean, uh, sorry, Paul Bia, uh, the president of Cameroon, is, I think, the oh, longest-serving. good for serving. you. Uh, he was, uh, Long, yeah, was yeah. <laughs> he's the longest-serving head of state. Yeah. Was he still the, the head of state? That's uh, quite a there? trivial question for you to come up with the name Paul Bia. Yeah. Actually, uh, he succeeded the person I was uh, yeah, uh, um, there was someone yeah. named Ilhaj Amado Ahiju, okay. who was replaced by Paul Bia, who I think has eclipsed uh, Ahijo at this point. Oh, he's but, the long, I think he's the longest yeah, serving. Yeah. Yes. So, have you, uh, did you have any interactions? Uh, I can't say I have. I, a, uh, I never got back to Africa in the Foreign Service. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'd love to see it again. I did check with someone a few years ago, and lo and behold, the credit unions are still there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was in Cameroon a few years ago. Uh, oh my for a goodness! Project huh. in uh, yeah. with uh, a health organization. Yeah, yeah. Now we're going to the we're going to the wall here. What is this? Ah, okay. We're looking at a picture. There you go. A young ambassador, Chris Hill, uh, in front of the Bota Engineering Credit Union office. Yeah, I will have to get a copy of that on the way out. That was my uh, Suzuki uh, 125 dirt bike there. There you on the go. Left. It's then, probably still around. And the other photo is with my old uh, Suzuki 125, but I s- smashed that up pretty badly, along with a few of my ribs. Ah. So, um, so after, so, so you decided you wanted to take the Foreign Service uh, Took the Foreign exam- Service yeah. exam in Douala, okay. um, which was a little uh, two-person consulate at the time. And then in those days, you wait and wait because there was no Internet. And mm-hmm. so I went to Boat Postal 63, which was our mailbox, and boy, and lo and behold, I got a thick envelope. Okay. 
So that began my uh, foreign service career. And where was your first posting? In Belgrade, Yugoslavia. Uh, and so what, what year? It was probably about 1970, late 70s, late 70s. Okay. Yeah. What's, um, uh, so I guess this is the Tito era probably. You so got what's, it. You what's got the... it. Tito died uh, yeah. uh, while I was there. And okay. uh, end of an era, and you certainly had the sense that Yugoslavia was never going to be the same. So what year, let's play, like, what year did Tito die? He died in May uh, 1980. 80, okay. Yeah. So what, um, uh, as sort of, you know, a young foreign service officer, what, I mean, how did you perceive that change? Like, what, well, what I mean, the big question was, could such a system uh, put together with string and chewing gum uh, and resting on quite a bit of hypocrisy about uh, uh, communism that no one really believed in, um, could such a system survive without a strong leader like Tito? And uh, the initial reaction was, no, it couldn't, and the final analysis was, indeed, it could not. Well, why do you think it hung on for another 10 years then? Well, um, because of the lack of alternatives. But uh, Yugoslavia, I think, was a complex problem, still is. But the concept was, for Serbs, it was a vast conspiracy by other nationalities in the South, um, uh, South Balkans, South Slav, South Slavic nationalities, to hold Serb aspirations down. It was a kind of contraption designed to prevent Serbia from taking its rightful place as a great nation of Europe. Mm -hmm. After all, the French have France, the Germans have Germany, and the Serbs have one bit of a thing called Yugoslavia. So from Serbia's point of view, it was a, it was a conspiracy against them. From the point of view of everyone else, Croats, Slovenes, Kosovars, etc., they saw it as a conspiracy to enshrine Serb domination. Mm -hmm. So these kind of uh, dueling uh, um, narratives of uh, conspiracy really played out, and it took a while for finally the war clouds to gather and for the war to begin. And I guess as a first-year foreign service officer, you're probably processing visas. No, actually, thing. I was an assistant commercial attaché, so I was okay. helping American business people. Invest in Yugoslavia. Invest in Yugoslavia. Yeah. Ill-timed investments, perhaps. <laughs> probably not a great investment, but... Um, so how long did you serve? Two years. Two years? Yeah. And that's pretty typical, right? You get yes. two years and one. As a junior officer. As a junior officer. When you um, get into other assignments, it becomes more difficult to have three years. Mm -hmm. So I went from Yugoslavia back to Washington. Yeah. Worked in something called the Operations Center. Good thing to do as a junior officer, good ticket punch. And then I went to Poland and worked there for two years in the economic section. So, I mean, this is probably like the height of the Solidarity Movement time? Uh, actually, now? Solidarity Movement had already been uh, uh, quashed, and this became the height of sort of what, what was martial law and then a uh, process known as normalization. Uh, what was which, that? I'm not, I'm not Well, sure a lot of people were in, put in prison, so okay. there was the Solidarity 7, all in prison. Lech Wałęsa had been in house arrest for most of the time. So it was a very um, sad time in Poland, a very tragic time, because there was a sense it would never improve. So I was there from 83 to 80. This is via, uh, 83 to 85. This is via a uh, year of language training mm -hmm. and assignment in the department. So 
when uh, when I left in '85, I kind of left in a kind of lugubrious mood about Eastern Europe. That mm-hmm. is, it was so sad, so tragic. These people had never wanted this hideous system to be imposed on them, and I just saw no no end in sight. So you decided to go to the Middle East? <laughs> no, I went off to uh, <laughs> yeah. Korea. To Korea, okay. Really go go Korea, which is uh, you know South Korea it was a mm-hmm. exciting place. Olympics were scheduled in, in yeah. 1988. I got there in '85. It was a Everyone was really excited about the prospects for the country. The economy was booming, continues to boom. Mm-hmm. The um, and then by '87, as they got ready, really ready for the Olympics, kind of people looked around and said, "What are we missing here?" And the answer was, "We're missing a democracy." And so, uh, before you know it, they start having uh, you know, real elections. And how did, uh, I mean, how did that? I mean, how did those elections happen, and what was your role in? I was, again, I was in my I was in an economic section there, yeah. um, um, and it turned out to be my last economic job. I ended up doing more political things mm-hmm. after that, but um, uh, the economic and political sections worked very closely together. We, um, our job was to be reporting back to the department on what the mood of the country was like, what people were saying, what investors were saying, what Korean senior business were saying, what the markets were looking like. And also, occasionally, we were thrown into the breach to uh, go report on demonstrations in various parts of town. So that, um, in addition to getting um, news from wire feeds, uh, the department could know, you know what things really looked like out there. So um, I think any uh, uh, a number of us were sort of out there in the streets, occasionally getting hit with uh, tear gas, but sort of understanding what the um, what the situation was on the streets. Well, I mean, just sort of thinking about comparing sort of the the sort of the failed U.S. support for dem- for the sort of democratic movement in Poland to the successful U.S. support for the democratic movement in South Korea. Like, what do you think? Uh, was the difference? What made the difference, do you think, in one situation you know, um, to the other? Well, Poland was part of an empire, an evil empire. Poland uh, was a, uh, um, you know, a, uh, a country that was being held down by another country, the Soviet Union. And so even though the U.S., I think, was a constant beacon of freedom and beacon of hope for Poles, it was not at all clear that we could be a decisive factor in getting Poland out of this uh, um, Soviet um, satellite status. I think what Poland finally did in 1989 was simply made it very clear to the communist authorities that it wasn't going to work. Gorbachev made it very clear that he wasn't going to intervene, and the rest is history. With respect to Korea, it's a lot more complex because there was a perception among many Koreans that the U.S. was on the wrong side of history. And this was a rather, uh, I think, uh, you know, unfortunate for U.S. interests in Korea. There was a perception among many Koreans that as much as we had done to help Korea, especially in the Korean War, and it's a bit of a myth that the Koreans have forgotten about the Korean War. They all know what we did in the Korean War. But um, there was also this perception that somehow we were more comfortable with military-type regimes in Korea than we would have been with democratic regimes. And I think uh, the process in the 80s, uh, was a process of uh, the U.S. kind of lining itself up to be much more perceived as being on the right side of the angels rather than the wrong side. And I guess what did that process look like from the inside, right, was as you were... Well, for example, some, yeah. for example, uh, there was the issue of Kim Dae-jung, who was a uh, Korean dissident, later became president in the late 1990s. But Kim Dae-jung was... Uh, 
was really slated to be executed by uh, by the Chunduan government, and the U.S. worked very hard to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, so that kind of got out there from people to people that um, the United States was um, really not interested in that type of uh, you know military uh, you know, regime, martial law type regime. So I think we started to get on the right side of things, and I think. Um, the Olympics went very well, and then soon thereafter, uh, you got non-military figures uh, winning elections, including Kim Dae-jung himself. Mm -hmm. So I think the U.S. kind of straightened itself out vis-a-vis -vis the Korean public, and I think we have a superb relationship today. And uh, how long were you in Korea? I was there for three three years, and uh, left prior to the um, to the Olympics. Came back to um, Washington. Did a year on the on the hill, which is what uh, what you try to do as a foreign service officer get one year on the hill so you can understand. Like a fellowship sort of. Yeah, that sort, sort of thing. thing. Yeah. So I worked for Congressman Solars. Um, we had um, he was a congressman um, who famously was very concerned about America's uh, status in the world and very concerned about world events. So uh, I took a trip with him back to Poland in in '89 summer of 89, just as the uh, uh, history started changing mm -hmm. dramatically. And, of course, a few months later, the Berlin Wall was down and Poland was a democracy, and a lot of things uh, were happening at that time. So a very ex exciting time. And I then, um, in 89, about that time, took over the Polish desk at the State Department. So I was kind of in the middle of all that. I was at the White House for... Uh, uh, Lech Wałęsa's visits. I, in fact, one time I escorted Lech Wałęsa out to California for a meeting with Ronald Reagan at the, at the Reagan at the then unfinished Ronald Reagan Library. Uh -huh. Here was an electrician from Gdańsk, Lech yeah. Wałęsa, meeting a former actor from Hollywood. Uh, clearly, nothing in common between the two except they just loved each other, and so you sat at lunch and they were. You know, going back and forth through interpreters because Valencia didn't speak any uh, English and um, and uh, Reagan didn't speak any Polish, and but through interpreters, all these kind of bad jokes, and they just love them. Um, Do you remember any of the jokes? Oh, uh, sometimes they're a little, just a tad bit risque. I yeah. think at one point uh, there was a question. Um, uh, Reagan asked uh, Valencia, who famously had something like ten children, uh, whether uh, he planned any more. And, and Valencia said to the president, uh, "No, I uh, left my tools in the attic." Uh, so, <laughs> and then uh, Valencia is looking up at the bats of insulation coming out of the walls. And as a former electrician from Gdańsk, he was very uh, familiar with construction projects and uh, giving uh, uh, then-former President Reagan a hard time about the, his view that the uh, library would soon be open. And as a so, mid-level State Department official, are you just sweating bullets the whole time, or are you thinking this is Actually, um, you, you are <laughs> often sweating bullets as a mid-level uh, Foreign Service officer, because yeah. uh, often you're in charge of whether something is going well or not. In this case, I wasn't in charge. I was on, along for the ride, and it went beautifully, and it was one of the most pleasurable moments. And then after that, you know, with history seeming to be over, I jumped back into it in the Balkans. Uh, mm -hmm working in, um, in uh, Albania, which uh, had a kind of feel for uh, as a sort of the North Korea of Europe. Right, yeah. 
and uh, Albania was going through a difficult transition. You know, it's funny, you see people have been essentially cooped up in a closet for uh, 40 years, and you sort of, you're kind of surprised that they look okay, and then you realize maybe they're not okay, but mm-hmm. then finally in the fullness how of that, time. How does that manifest itself? You know, because Albania, you know, like you said, for all these years, it was you know, the North Korea of Europe. How, was there this, like, national trauma that was, like, expressing itself? It was right? kind of traumatic, like? but one of the issues was to manage expectations from the United States, because all they had heard about the United States was the, were that the streets were paved with gold. And so the expectation would be as soon as they established relations with the United States, we'd start sending them gold. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you had to kind of tamp down those expectations but not tamp down their belief in you and their hopes uh, in you. So um, it was a question of uh, trying to establish relations, trying to work well with people. Um, when they come at issues very differently, they simply, uh, we just didn't know each other. It's like a totally well. different frame of reference, yes. right? Yes, I would yeah. imagine. And what was your, uh, what was your position there? Were you an ambassador? I opened point? up the embassy. I was okay. a charge. I was not ambassador. Okay. Okay. And then, uh, our ambassador came, uh, about, uh, six, he had been there early. He'd been there, uh, one of the people who had kind of, uh, gone there as an as a single foreign service officer and when James Baker came to uh, to visit uh, Albania in June 1991 uh, he looked at this uh, consular officer Bill Ryerson and said well why can't he be the first ambassador so I worked for Bill for a couple ah. of years great guy and I, I would imagine you know 1991 Albania I mean you're getting a sense that things are about to turn ugly. Oh because yes. What was your? Oh, yes. What were the first indications? Well, first of all, uh, we had a ringside seat on what was going on in Yugoslavia, just mm-hmm. north of the border, and things were ugly. Uh, you could see the um, as Yugoslavia began to fall apart, the Serbs were not prepared to accept the borders that had essentially come to pass over the years, but really been internal borders, not external borders. So the Serbs, many Serbs living in Croatia, for example, so the Serbs thought if you're going to have international borders, part of that new uh, part of Croatia should be incorporated into Serbia. Mm -hmm. And, of course, most famously, they felt that way about half of Bosnia. So uh, you could see this uh, coming about just being present in the Balkans. And you could also see the uh, traces of, uh, of... problems in, in Kosovo. I mean, Kosovo had always been a problem, but you could see that that could be the next uh, the next explosion. Like, did you ever get a sense, though, that it might turn into ethnic cleansing or, or genocide? Oh, yes, because when I was in, um, in uh, Albania already, um, uh, Vukovar in eastern Slavonia had exploded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, the first, right. And yeah. then... Um, and then you also got a sense of the limits of diplomacy when the Europeans felt that just a recognition of uh, of uh, Bosnia and Croatia would be enough to tell the Serbs to put down their pitchforks, and uh, it clearly wasn't. And so you got a real sense of uh, of the fact that uh, the Europeans um, began to have a divergent view of uh, of the situation from Americans who were further away. So soon after that, I was uh, I was very much involved because I became the director for the Balkans under uh, Richard Holbrook, and uh, made many trips out to the region with him uh, through very very difficult times. What was the first time you met Slobodan Milosevic like? 
Uh, he was, uh, as always, very sort of pugnacious, um, wearing very nice bright red tie and a uh, nice double-breasted blue uh, blazer. Um, kind of good sense of humor, real sense of charm. Uh, but someone, if you've seen a you know Robert De Niro gangster movie, you might have some sense of uh, what it was like. He, was, uh, uh, I, I once worked at the ICTY like 10 years ago, uh-huh. the war crimes tribunal, yeah. on the team of prosecutors that yeah. was going yeah. after him at the time. It was just a few months before he died, actually. Did you meet him? Did you see him? I mean, through the through the yeah. glass yeah. at the war crimes tribunal. Yeah. I was on the other side yeah. helping the, the prosecutors. Yeah. But, but, yeah, I mean, he was, I mean, people really, he was charming. He was a very good politician. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's, there's dictators no are, all, are often good politicians, mm-hmm. something to remember. Uh, dictators also have, a, as good politicians and being dictators, they also have a very good sense of how to manipulate ethnic and nationality questions. Mm-hmm. And I think Milosevic was very good at that. Well, that was always what, what sort of the, the prosecutor um, at the time, Jeffrey Nice, uh, was, was always saying, you know, that he wasn't a nationalist because he had this no. irrational view no. of Serbian superiority. He was a very skillful politician with, like, a little bit of a criminal streak. Slobo Milosevic was not interested in greater Serbia. Yeah. He was great, interested in greater Slobo, I think, uh, Slobo-Slavia, if you will. And uh, I think he was... Uh, at first a communist, but I don't think he believed in that. Nobody did. And then became a Serb nationalist, and I don't think he believed in that either. So I think he's um, one of these people who kind of sensed maybe ahead of most people what the mood of the country was and espoused that as his own belief. So what was the last time you met him like? And how... I, I, Oh, Where you have to. You have Dayton? to. No, no. You have to fast forward through through Dayton. He actually really tried to um, uh, help in Dayton because you know he was clearly he, he was done with Bosnia. He knew at that point. He knew it was over, and he kind of tried to uh, be helpful. I mean, overall, um, in the Dayton peace accords, as we tried to wrestle with the governance issues, he 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 was trying to be helpful. Uh, there's a whole cottage industry today that there was something very wrong with Dayton. Well, to those people in this cottage industry, I recommend they get into a time machine and go back to Dayton and tell me that they, how they could have done it better because you had uh, warring parties, you had uh, quite an assembly of people, and you're trying to work something out to create a peace settlement. Well, I think it's probably fair to yeah. say that Dayton was an expedient way to maybe end the war, but not necessarily if you had to go back and build a nation. Like offer I think um, the notion uh, that somehow Dayton created uh, uh, sort of ethnic tension uh, or somehow enshrined ethnic tension, uh, which is one of the criticisms of it because it has this kind of turn-taking uh, mm-hmm. uh, presidency in Bosnia. It has a kind of ethnic enclave uh, concept in Bosnia where you have a Serb Republic and a uh, uh, then-called Muslim, now-called Bosniak uh, uh, Croat Federation. So the notion was that Dayton somehow uh, codified uh, ethnic divisions. And I think that really gives Dayton a little more credit than it deserves because I think those ethnic divisions were very much codified over many, many centuries. And when you look at how um, even the Communist Party in um, uh, the League of Communists of Yugoslavia operated in, uh, in Yugoslavia and especially in Bosnia, even in Bosnia they 
among the communists, they had to take turns between Croats, Serbs, and uh, and um, uh, Muslims. I remember when I was in Yugoslavia the first time, and I met this very dour guy named Mikulic, who was the uh, Bosnian representative to the collective presidency, and I asked someone, well, how did he ever get that job? And the answer was, well, he's a Serb, and it was a Serb's term. So this didn't start with Dayton. Mm -hmm. And uh, the notion that people have that somehow uh, Bosnia should just be a um, a civil, uh, or being a Bosnian should be a civil concept, uh, the way being an American is a civil concept regardless of your ethnic origins. Mm -hmm. Um, That's true in Bosnia insofar as you have a Bosnian passport, but obviously uh, there's a lot of water under the bridge there, and the notion that uh, uh, people, um, all the Serbs, were just going to sort of say, okay, we're just, uh, we believe in civil society and therefore we're just Bosnians, it's just um, completely unrealistic. Today, or I should say then, you had 44% Muslim, or Bosniak, as they're now rechristened, uh, 34% Serb, and about 20-something percent uh, uh, Croat. And today, I suspect that 44% figure of Bosniak is much higher because I think a lot of Serbs left and a lot of Croats have left. Mm -hmm. So I can understand when people look at the demography of the country today and say, well, what were they thinking back in Dayton? One, they didn't understand what the demographics were in the the mid-'90s. And two, they didn't understand the milieu that we were facing. Uh, So so, uh, getting back to to Melissa's what was the last time? What was the circumstance of the last so time? So the last time him? I saw him, of course, was uh, after the Kosovo issue began uh, started up in the in the summer of uh, actually May of 1998. Secretary Albright asked me to take that on from my perch as ambassador in uh, Macedonia, mm-hmm. and so um, I began to do, make a lot of trips to uh, Kosovo, but I also made a lot of trips to Belgrade, including to see Milosevic. Ultimately, we were not able to get the Serbs and the, and the Albanians to agree on an autonomy deal for, for Kosovo, the Serbs believing that any autonomy for Kosovo would lead to an independent status for Kosovo with the Albanians greatly outnumbering the Serbs. Uh, the Albanians were not prepared to live with any kind of ties to Serbia. So um, as the Serbs continued to crack down against the civilian population there, um, very brutally, uh, you know, herding people out of villages, burning villages, etc. Um, the uh, conversations that I had with Milosevic became more and more difficult until the last one was just before the war started, just before we, we began air operations in Serbia in March of 1999. And at that point, it was very clear that Milosevic was done dealing with us. It was not um, as it had been during Dayton where he was, you know, uh, trying to find uh, solutions to things. It was quite the opposite. He was very fatalistic. And I remember he said, you know, you're a superpower. If you want to call today, Tuesday, if you want to call it uh, Wednesday, you can call it whatever you want because you're a superpower. There's nothing I can do about it. So a very sort of fatalistic uh, leader. So that was the last time I ever saw him. So that was March uh, 1999. So he knew he was sealing his fate at that point. Yes, huh. yes. I left Macedonia in August uh, 1999. I went to the National Security Council staff uh, where I worked as a senior director and uh, special assistant to the president for the Balkans. And essentially what we were trying to do was to implement all of our 
our programs. We had just brought troops into uh, Kosovo mm -hmm. uh, just a couple of months before. We had a lot of uh, uh, commitments in Bosnia, so mm -hmm. Kosovo and Bosnia and, and managing the U.S. relationship there were. What's for a career foreign service officer who's reached sort of like those highest levels? What's that? transition period at the end of one administration like? And I know a lot of the politicals kind of you know, go their separate ways. What What's it like? Is there foreboding from, from a uh, uh, you know, career foreign service officer's point of view? Well, I think, uh, um, of course, a year later in 2010, you had the, uh, the election. Mm -hmm. I was already ambassador. 2000, yeah. Uh, 2000, yeah. 2000 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had the election, so I was already out in, in Poland when that happened. So it doesn't really affect your life too much as a career ambassador. Um, what you do is you offer your resignation, mm -hmm. and um, they always uh, respond that you should serve out your term. That uh, Rarely do they recall a uh, career foreign service officer from ambassadorial post. And it's Almost. sort of a formality, right? Because yes. you are the ambassador for the specific president. Like yes. You are Bill Clinton's ambassador. So it is a uh, formality. Okay. So you send in your resign letter of resignation, mm -hmm. and it's never accepted. It's, you're already always told mm -hmm. to serve out your term. That's not true for political appointees. Mm -hmm. And then you get uh, often the case where they don't really want to leave. They might have just gotten there a year before, and yeah. they're sort of hoping they can be allowed to stay. And sometimes they lobby rather ferociously mm -hmm. to do that. And there, I mean, for a country like Poland, right, which is where you were serving, that yeah. seems to be a country, I would imagine, that's probably reserved for political appointees. No, um, I was replaced by a political appointee, mm -hmm. uh, and I think there had been one political appointee earlier in the 90s, but most, almost everybody had been career. The person who replaced me, the former mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee, um, and Republican mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee, mm -hmm. uh, was he was then replaced by another by someone who um, worked for uh, Secretary Clinton at some point on the Hill. So he was a um, he was a, also political, not mm -hmm. uh, career. But now it's back in career okay. hands. I wonder. I've always had the sense that you know it's sort of bad for U.S. foreign policy to have so many. Uh, positions reserved for political officers because, I mean, you know, there are only so many ambassadorships, right, That's correct. that are out there. That's correct. And when you've spent a 30-year career and you're yeah. trying to become an ambassador, it's pretty galling that somebody mm -hmm. who is a campaign bundler might be able to uh, mm -hmm. get the position that you've wanted all your life, all your career. So, yes, that is a problem. Um, I think a career uh, political pointy, and by the way, there's some good ones, uh, mm -hmm. so it's it's one shouldn't just leap to the assumption that they don't have any idea what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the ones who do best are the ones who uh, can show the host government that they have a very uh, good relationship with the president. Well, isn't that sort of the flip side? If yeah. you are, you know, the government of, of France, you want, you know, someone yes. who will be able to pick up the phone and call the president. As Absolutely. opposed to, right, that is someone who has side. to go through the, yeah. the regular channels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you... Uh, you were, you, so do you remain in the National Security Council staff? Uh, I did it for a year, for a and year. then I went to Poland. Okay, and, and uh, 
George Bush appointed you to Poland? Or uh, no, uh, Bill Clinton appointed okay. me to Poland, and so I was off to Poland in the summer of 2000, mm -hmm. and in November of 2000 they had the election. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember I Those was... twins, uh, right? Or is my... The, the, the two brothers? Oh, you're talking about the Polish... The, the yes. Pol oh, yeah, the Polish Yeah, that election. was much later. Okay, I'm trying to... Trying to that was much later. Okay. Poland, I think, had their presidential election, I want to say, in the fall of... Okay. Of... Uh, 2001, yeah. something like that, um, a re-election for mm -hmm. their president. But we had an election in uh, November 2000, mm -hmm. and uh, of course, I remember. Uh, <laughs> after a month later, we had a president, and uh, yeah. so I stayed on, and he visited Poland uh, mm -hmm. twice when I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, where were you uh, on uh, September 11th, 2001? I was at the embassy, okay. and uh, uh, someone came down the hall and said that the uh, uh, a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center, which we all thought was some hideous accident. But then we all were watching um, television and saw that a second plane had crashed, and then we knew there was something else. And then almost immediately, people started gathering in front of the embassy. And before you knew it, uh, we had fla flowers, candles, and they had to block two of the four lanes in front of the embassy uh, as people just uh, made this kind of instantaneous memorial in front of um, in front of the embassy and what was your I guess your your instinct as to um, how the US ought to respond um, well uh, to hit them back mm -hmm. uh, I certainly didn't have a moment's hesitation in the idea that we should uh, go to Afghanistan and find these people and kill them mm -hmm. um, so uh, and we had a lot of other countries you know um, in that uh, mode of thinking, including mm -hmm. Poland. What about this sort of larger question of, of whether the operation in Afghanistan should expand beyond just hitting them back to doing some sort of like nation building? Well, certainly, na part of the time. certainly nation building. Uh, uh, Afghanistan was a pretty uh, quick and uh, not so dirty affair. I mean, it was uh, we worked with something called the Northern Alliance. Mm -hmm. And before you know, Jim Dobbins on, yeah. who was the U.S. Well, he came on later yeah. in that process, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a kind of CIA military type process, mm -hmm. and it moved very quickly. But one did get the sense uh, early on that the issue of Iraq was beginning to loom, and I think anyone who knew anything about Saddam Hussein, notwithstanding our vice president's view, but. Most people understood that Saddam Hussein, hideous that he was, was not behind um, Sunni Islamicist terrorists. Um, so anyone who kind of had an understanding of the region understood that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do what with Al-Qaeda. What was your first inclination, uh, and where did it come from, that Iraq might be in the crosshairs? Um, I think early on, um, you could, uh, there were pronouncement statements coming out of Washington that suggested that there was a view... Nothing that, internally that you saw? No, that nothing suggested. internally, no. Mm -hmm. No. Just, no. And uh, so how so? Uh, how long did you serve then as uh, U.S. Ambassador to Poland? Well, I stayed till 2004. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I uh, went to South Korea. As, as the ambassador? As Korea. ambassador, yeah. And so in 2003... Uh, I'm trying to remember, is when North Korea pulled out of the NPT, right? Uh, yes, I wasn't involved with those issues at that point. Mm -hmm. I, I was uh, 
in 2003, I was much more involved in the fact that Poland became one of the only four warfighters, Britain, Australia, U.S. being the other three. So I was very sort of following that in mm -hmm. that part of the equation. As part of the International Assistance Force in Afghanistan? Well, no, this is in Iraq. In Iraq, okay. So uh, there were four warfighting countries. There are others that came in in the, in the uh, nation-building stage. Yeah. But uh, of the countries actually seizing uh, mm -hmm. installations from Saddam's forces, British, British, Australians, and Poles mm -hmm. were the other three. I guess, did you initially think this was a mistake, this decision to invade I had Iraq. I had many Polish friends who were um, very concerned that, uh, yes, we could certainly subdue the, uh, the uh, Saddam government, but that it was going to be a very difficult process from then on. What about the decision? Was this something... Uh, I think, um, like every ambassador, I was being given information about the weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. um, there were there was not a lot of certainty. A lot not a, there was not a lot of uncertain uh, uncertainty about it. I mm -hmm. mean, they were uh, the um, president was pretty uh, straight about it. Secretary of State. Uh, so um, I think you know from our point of view out in the field, we were supporting uh, the president's decision. Um, the concern, of course. And I heard this from many Poles who understood the country because Poland uh, has, have, has had people, you know, all over the world over the years. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they kind of understood Iraq better than we did. And uh, that was where I first heard the idea that if we turn Iraq into a democracy, it will mean a Shia-led country, and that will be the only Shia-led country in the entire Middle East. And we are in for a difficult time. Mm -hmm. And like, were you able to express these concerns, or it was your duty as you know the U.S. ambassador to sort of execute? I would not have uh, tried to come in and say, "Gee, I'm hearing from our Polish interlocutors that this is going mm -hmm. to be tough." Mm -hmm. I did um, talk to President Kwasniewski, who um, had some concerns. This is the president of Poland. President Sorry. of Poland who had concerns, but he's very pro-American, mm -hmm. very supportive. And so um, he was going to meet with President Bush in the Oval Office, and he told me he was going to register these concerns with the president, and I said, by all means, that's what the meeting is for. Mm -hmm. And uh, President Kwasniewski did express concerns about how the occupation would go. Um, and uh, President Bush tried to put his mind at ease by saying, look, we've, uh, we, we know all the hospitals, we know all the grids, we know everything. When we go in, we'll be able to make everybody happy. Yeah, and the rest is history, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess how, I mean, it seems like you, you had served in uh, South Korea before. How was the, the decision made to, I guess, send you to, to South oh, Korea? Oh, well, why? I got into the... Uh, car with, um, this is in the in May of 2003, I got into the car with uh, uh, Colin Powell on the president's trip to Krakow, and Colin Powell was with the president, and mm -hmm. Colin Powell um, had heard that I was interested, because I had registered that with his deputy secretary, Armitage, Richard right? Armitage, yeah. so Powell said, um, would you'd like to go to Korea after this? And I said, I would. 
And he said, well, I think that would be a good job, and I'm going to recommend that. Or a good idea, and I, I'm going to recommend that. Why, like, why did you want that? Uh, I had, you seem to be kind of in the middle of things, right? I was watching yeah. Korea from afar, mm -hmm. and uh, I felt that the relationship with Korea was not nearly as good as it should be. And I could see it was, we were having some growing pains in that relationship. I was also good friends with a Korean ambassador in Poland, a guy named Song Min Soon. We used to meet fairly frequently. And uh, he was a good friend of a friend of mine in Korea, so we got to know each other very quickly. And um, Song uh, would talk about Korea, and, uh, and I, I told Song I'd love to go back and see if I'd try my hand at fixing some of these issues. So, um, what were some of the issues? Well, just that if you looked at um, the way the U.S. was refusing to negotiate with North Korea, mm -hmm. we were creating a problem where some 50% of South Koreans were blaming the U.S. for North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I felt we could manage that a little better. When you've turned North Koreans into victims, you're probably doing something wrong. So, and I just felt we could, um, with maybe a little better diplomacy, we could pull things off with the South Koreans. And so let's, I mean, for, you know, I think not everyone has an, as intimate a knowledge of the uh, six-party talks and of the decision to, of North Korea to walk out of the uh, non-proliferation treaty, uh, and you eventually became the, uh, the U.S. delegate to the six-party Well, let me, let me slow down a little. So, so I have, why don't you explain some of that Well, history. first of all, I become ambassador of South Korea, mm -hmm. and I worked a lot on trying to improve the relationship there and doing a lot of public diplomacy. That is, uh, I was really felt very strongly that with Korea's democratic shift, it was not enough to be uh, accredited to the foreign ministry. You needed to be essentially accredited to the Korean people. So I worked very hard on that type of public diplomacy and being uh, visible and sympathetic to the Korean people. And in fact, in um, I describe in my book how I went and uh, uh, laid flowers at the uh, Kwangju Cemetery where many people were killed during the uh, uprising against Chun Doo-won's martial law. And um, the perception that many Koreans had was somehow the U.S. was, you know, against the Korean people on this. So I felt it was important to kind of improve that narrative, <laughs> change that narrative. And so um, things went really well, and then Secretary Rice became... I mean, became Secretary of State, and she asked me to come back and be the um, uh, Assistant Secretary for Asia, mm -hmm. and also to be the six-party talks, um, U.S. Mm -hmm. rep to the six-party talks. So I started doing that in the spring of 2005. So there's, I think, some controversy, or, or you know, maybe some history that needs to be filled in. Uh, in 2003, uh, uh, North Korea pulls out of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, because, you know, I think it was alleged at the time, the, the U.S. government accused them of, I think it was like diverting... Uh, the U.S. government right. very... You, uh, you know the story about that. Yeah, the U.S. Yeah. government um, had indications, starting during the Clinton administration, mm -hmm. uh, that North Korea was making imports of, uh, of equipment consistent with the effort to um, create a bomb through another means that is not a nuclear reactor, but rather through uh, something called centrifuges and to create um, highly enriched uranium. Mm -hmm. The second uh, means to get a bomb, you can do it through a, a, a reactor that eventually produces plutonium, 
or you can do it through centrifuges that eventually produce highly enriched uranium. So the North Koreans, uh, it appeared that the North Koreans were um, busy trying to produce uh, fissile material through, um, through uh, highly enriched uranium and um, based on imports of theirs. So the U.S. essentially pulled out of something called the uh, Agreed Framework, mm-hmm. uh, which was that in return for keeping their uh, plutonium plant shut down, the U.S. would give them fuel oil and things like that. That was sort of, that was basically negotiated by Jimmy Carter, right? As as far back as, well, not really Jimmy Carter. Yeah, he came in at one point. That was like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, But it was was negotiated in like the mid-90s, right? Yes, yes. I think the people who negotiated it would not accept the notion that it was negotiated by Jimmy Carter, but... uh, As a, someone in in the room would attempt. (laughs) So... Dennis Rodman. Yeah, yeah, uh, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. so, um, so the U.S. essentially pulled out of what was called the Agreed Framework, right, right, okay. uh, which had been negotiated earlier in the nineties. And what was your feeling on that? Well, I think when you pull out of a negotiation and you don't have anything to replace it with, you probably made a mistake. And more importantly, um, by pulling out of the negotiations with nothing to put in its place, the uh, we created a lot of problems among our allies, principally within Korea, South Korea. Mm-hmm. So um, we had nothing to show for any negotiations, and at the same time, North Korea was merrily uh, starting up their plutonium plant and uh, producing more fissile material. So I think that's like an important point to emphasize, right? The U.S. accused, you know, pulled out of the agreed framework because of accusations it was that, that, uh, that North Korea was enriching uranium. And essentially, Meanwhile, they were pursuing this yeah. other uh, yes. avenue to acquire nuclear so weapons. The United States, I think, uh, was correct to Maybe say... This is like the Cheney wing, right? That they were yeah. the ones No, but this were, was early on, and I, mm-hmm. I think everyone in the administration uh, was upset to see that North Korea and the U.S. had a deal and the, and the North Koreans were cheating. Mm-hmm. And so they... Uh, but when one side cheats... It may not be in your interest to pull out of the agreement. Uh, you know, it may be in your interest to stay in the agreement and work on the issue that you're concerned about, that is, try to get to the bottom of your suspicions that they're cheating, mm-hmm. rather than just completely abrogate or not abrogate, but pull out, stop, produ- stop providing fuel oil. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of wrinkles to this story, but basically... You know, if they're two individuals and they have a dispute over land uh, or something, it might be clear-cut that you want to pull out of the deal. But in this case, you might not want to immediately pull out because there might be some other reasons to stay in the deal while you try to uh, figure out what exactly the other side has been doing. And I think one of those reasons to stay in the deal was that the South Koreans were a little upset that we had just kind of gone ahead and and pulled out. Mm -hmm. And in the view of the South Koreans and others as well, there was a view that somehow the U.S. Uh, pulled out of something and wasn't in a position to replace it with anything. Mm-hmm. So the so by pulling out, we created a situation where the North Koreans were um, started producing plutonium again. And so, about in 2004, in the summer of 2004, President. Uh, it was actually a little earlier, but President Bush and Jiang Zemin, the Chinese president, agreed that we needed a more multilateral process, not just the U.S. involved, but um, 
uh, we should get something called the six-party talks involved. But the North Koreans, they went to one or two meetings, but they wouldn't go to too many other, any others. So the consequence was that um, we had a new process, but we hadn't really launched it. Mm-hmm. So I, um, when I was asked to get involved with this in the spring of uh, 2005, I uh, worked with the South Koreans and worked with the Chinese um, and, and the Japanese and the Russians on getting the thing started, and we eventually got it started in the summer of 2005. And so what was that meeting? What was that first meeting like? What was of the six-party talks? six-party talks, yeah. You know, kind of take us inside the room. Well, it's a very large room. In uh, Beijing, I would In presume. Beijing at the Dayutai mm-hmm. uh, Guest House in Beijing, made famous during the Nixon visits and things like that. Um, and uh, my approach was to try to get a piece of paper that everybody could sign on to. It wouldn't be a final implementing document, but it would be a start. And the point was to have on that paper, agreed by the North Koreans as well, that they would abandon all their nuclear programs. And um, what we discovered, and of course there was this big issue about not negotiating directly with the North Koreans. We only negotiated with them in the context of a multilateral process. So, and that was a that was an okay position, except that um, in the context of a uh, you know uh, days on end working in a um, multilateral uh, meeting, you couldn't simply not have any bilateral talks with the North Koreans. So, uh, we started meeting with the North Koreans as we met with others one on one as well. The, Japanese, the Chinese, etc. We didn't all, we didn't just meet in six parties. Meeting in six parties, that was hard to get work done. Hard enough with two people in the room, let alone mm-hmm. six, and then each had a delegation of, you know, thirty or so. So by the time, you know, you're talking about upwards of two hundred people in the room. And so when it's just you and the North Korean delegates, um, how I guess, how do those interactions happen? Is it, is it strained? I mean, obviously the relations between the two countries are non-existent. Well, it's it kind of strained because um, the, what we'd be doing is going through the documents that the Chinese are producing to try to get everyone to agree. And uh, if the North Koreans would show some flexibility, we'd try to lock it down. Then I'd tell the Chinese that the North Koreans have agreed to this, uh, to this formulation in paragraph 3. Then the North Koreans would confirm that to the Chinese, and then we move on. Was there any like humor or levity? I mean, rarely, I rarely. So I, I talked to Bill Richardson, and you know his strategy would always be to kind of like crack a joke at the start of one of these. You know, uh, but I, I don't think that that. Yeah, he was kind everyone. of in a different situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't a lot of levity. I mean, you always try to kind of keep it light and mm-hmm. not be. Uh, you know, I mean, people do better when they're a little more relaxed, but mm-hmm. uh, there there wasn't. Uh, you know, negotiating with the North Koreans was not easy. I mean, there was not a lot of discussion of kids or, you know, uh, raising teenagers or, you know, sports or, you know, what I did on my summer vacation. Right. I mean, it wasn't that kind of uh, situation. And did you get a sense that the, that the people you were talking to in the room um, were, you know, reflecting the views of, uh, I guess at the time, Kim Jong-il? Oh, absolutely. So much so that there wasn't a lot of flexibility from them. And when there was, you knew that it was coming from Pyongyang. And you found yourself talking less to their head of head of the delegation and more to their note-taker because you figured the note-taker was the one who was huh. bringing the information back to Pyongyang. I mean, looking for it, do you see any prospect or for 
you know, some sort of rapprochement between the U.S. and North Korea? I mean, it, I think it's a very difficult proposition. Um, North Korea, I think, is in a real difficult quandary because if they open up, that'll be the end of them. And if they don't open up, there's really no, you know, we, we can't really move ahead with them. So um, the hope was to get a deal on, you know, a deal that really sticks on nuclear issues. And, of course, they've been unwilling to proceed with that. Mm -hmm. um, and once we did that, we were prepared to look at all the other elements of the relationship, um, including, uh, you know, peace treaty, diplomatic relations, mm -hmm. et cetera. But, you know, we weren't prepared to move ahead on peace treaty and diplomatic relations in the absence of moving ahead on the nuclear deal. And so um, they seem, especially today, more than ever, unwilling to move ahead on the nuclear deal. And what's their, their bottom line? I mean, they seem to, you know, I mean, the regime seems to be, you know, not faltering. I mean, it seems it's, it's, it's gone through a succession successfully, it seems. Well, I mean, I think the concern is, and certainly my concern is, whereas the father, Kim Jong-il, seemed interested in what they could get for denuclearization, this current leader seems to have no interest at all in denuclearization. And that's, of course, the concern that everyone has. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we basically put everything on the table. We're prepared to talk about, you know, peace treaty, diplomatic relations, economic uh, assistance, but we're not prepared to talk about that in the absence of progress on, on nuclear uh, um, on their nuclear programs. We're not prepared to normalize with a nuclear North Korea. Mm -hmm. Now, if, it, if this got down to sequencing, all right, we do this, and then you do that, and then we do this, uh, you know, one could cut a deal. But um, we really never got that far. And so how... And many people right. in Washington were sort of thinking, well, first they have to do everything, and then we'll consider whether we're going to do something. And that, that doesn't work either. Mm -hmm. Uh, so how long uh, were you at the uh, Assistant Secretary of State for, was it East Asia and Pacific? Oh, four years. Four years, so yeah. for the duration of, of was it from of the, uh, For the duration of the second term of the President Bush. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, 2009, uh, I was set to, I was going to retire from the Foreign Service, and then Secretary Clinton asked me to do one more gig, and that was to go to Iraq. Mm -hmm. And how, how did that conversation happen? She called me upstairs soon after the inauguration, mm -hmm. and I thought she wanted another briefing memo on North Korea. I think there was a view among the in, in the incoming administration that the North Koreans had not completed the task in the fall of '08 because they thought that the U.S. would uh, that that somehow they'd prefer to deal with the new administration than with the uh, departing administration. So. So she was asking a lot of questions about the North Korean arrangement and whether they could kind of pick up the ball. So I went upstairs thinking that this was in that context, and instead she asked if I would uh, go to this Iraq. This sort of caught you by complete surprise? Completely, completely. She, she's like, have a seat, Ambassador Hill, do you want to Well, she, has, she asked me to have a seat, a nice wing chair, and I noticed that the, her deputy secretary, her undersecretary, her chief of staff were all sitting there, and I was thinking, oh, you know, North Korean policy is getting an upgrade. <laughs> and so um, she said all these nice things about my service. And so 
the next thing I knew, she said, will you do one more thing, and that's to go out and replace Ryan Crocker in, um, in Iraq. Mm -hmm. So I told her, I said, well, I'm going to make three comments. I, it's, I'm very honored, it's very important, and I'm going to need to think about it. And I thought about it overnight, and I thought, you know, um, I didn't want to tell my grandchildren that I never went to Iraq. So I, I said, okay, I'll do it. So... Was this, I mean, you, you hadn't served in uh, the Middle East before, right? No. So is this, um, I mean, did, did, did others perceive you as having maybe a lack of regional expertise? That well, in the Foreign Service, you often go to these different places, mm -hmm. and there's always an in-crowd mm -hmm. um, that says, you know, he doesn't have enough experience. I mean, I got a little of that in Korea, yeah. too, because even though I had served there in the 80s, it didn't necessarily count with the people who had been in Korea or dealing with Korean affairs ever since. So you always get a little of that kind of uh, resistance, you know, from the in crowd. Mm -hmm. And that that was certainly true in Iraq, but I think there are other things going on, so more what, political. Well, so, so let's talk about that. So you, you uh, arrived in, when, in, in like spring 2009? Yes, but what I wanted to suggest was after my name was announced, mm -hmm. um, Senator McCain, who had been kind of waging this campaign against the incoming president, uh, alleging that he didn't know what he was doing, didn't care about Iraq, etc. So I became Exhibit A <laughs> for uh, some uh, people on proof that Obama doesn't care about Iraq. He sends, this, he sends this uh, neophyte out there. So um, that's a little hard to take when you've been in the Foreign Service for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And believe me, what you spot, what you look for in the Foreign Service are patterns of behavior. I mean, uh, and so the politics of Iraq were easily accessible if you've spent years in the Foreign Service, especially in the western end of the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans. So I was not at all puzzled by what I encountered mm -hmm. uh, among the Iraqis. What was puzzling was the fact that we had a situation where the military really was in charge. And uh, the civilians were definitely in a secondary position. You know, so I would imagine. So you're, you're, let's go back to your hearing. You're at the Senate Foreign Relations hearing. Yeah. John McCain. Do you just have to bite your tongue? Yes, you bite your tongue mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, McCain, of course, was not in the Senate Foreign Relations at Committee. The, okay, right. He's armed services. But uh, at the time, but yeah. yeah, you bite your tongue a lot, and you. Uh, the trick in those hearings, of course, is you're simply trying to get yourself confirmed. So, um, I mean, I. I studied very hard, uh, but I couldn't overcome the fact that people would say, well, you don't even speak Arabic. Well, uh, except for Ryan Crocker, who did not really use it in business. He used it, um, you know, in social encounters, but he used an interpreter. Just as when I was in places like Poland, I used an, uh, an interpreter, even though I spoke Polish. Um, I think, uh, you know, that's... You know, no one else had spoken, uh, you know, yeah. Bremer, Negroponte, uh, uh, none of these people. I guess Khalil Zad, yeah. uh, Khalil Zad, um, you know. Um, so, so what was, so, so that was the, the big tension was really between the, 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 the military was still running the show in terms of... Military was running the show, and then there were a lot of uh, Republicans uh, around McCain who felt that this new president was going to squander the gains made in the surge. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, to a great extent, what was going on at that time was this total overselling of the surge as the secret sauce for any and all such interventions. Yes, we had a little hiccup in Iraq, but now that we've got the sauce for that, the surge, we'll, we won't have that problem anymore in Iraq. 
or anywhere else that we choose to invade. But it probably, I would imagine, it sort of masks more deeper political fissures oh, that needed yeah. to be solved. And, and yeah, oh, it was very, um, you know, it was uh, the people like McCain simply didn't trust Obama to uh, mm -hmm. follow up on on the alleged successes in Iraq, and so um, I became the the uh, for these people a, a, an example of the president not. Uh, caring enough about Iraq to send a real expert. So I had, um, I was speaking to Zalmay Khalilzad for, for this, and I asked yeah. him, you know, off, off the top, I mean, you know, it's no secret that he was kind of behind the scenes helped to uh, elevate uh, Nouri al-Maliki to become the the, the the prime minister. I mean, it's not, it's, it's like no big He's secret. He's proud of it. He tells and, and I asked him, yeah. you know, do, do you have any regrets about that? And he said, not at the time, but, you know, maybe. And I, what were you, what was your impression of him and... Of Maliki? Interactions of Maliki and working Well, I, I had a similar circumstance in that um, uh, Khalil Azad was dealing with a situation after the 06 elections, and I was dealing with a situation after the uh, 2010 elections. And so um, by 2010, it was well past the point where we could choose an Iraqi prime minister. Um, what essentially happened was that... Uh, and Americans, many Americans don't understand this because we don't have this system, but there's a parliament, and there are 325 seats, and to run a 325-seat parliament, you need at least 163 seats. So they have an election, and the election gets scattered across uh, a lot of um, coalitions, and the largest, the, the largest coalitions were Maliki's, where he came, came out with 89 seats, and Alawi's, where he came out with 91. Alawi was in a uh, coalition called the, uh, the Iraq National Party, largely Sunni, although uh, Alawi is actually a secular Shia. So neither Alawi nor Maliki came close to the 163. Uh, the difference is that Maliki went to work and Alawi went to CNN. And so um, Maliki, during the spring of 2010, was busy uh, scoffing up additional support by making promises to various tribal sheikhs, et cetera, et cetera. So by the, uh, as we got into the summer of uh, 2010, it was pretty clear that Maliki was heading toward a parliamentary majority, while uh, Alawi, to my knowledge, never went beyond 91. Mm -hmm. Now, there are people today who say somehow, somehow we should have stopped Maliki in his tracks, um, but I think it would have been akin to some sort of operation a la a um, you know, Latin American coup in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're in a position to sell, tell a seating, uh, sitting um, prime minister that he couldn't have a second term. What, uh, I guess sort of what decisions um, could you or your predecessor or you know, the U.S. government have made, say, between 2009 to today to prevent sort of the morass that we, that we see today. You know, well, I think it's very difficult, but I think the uh, the mess that we see today is uh, not just, as, uh, as some people suggest, uh, not just because of Maliki not reaching out to Sunnis. Um, if you look at what ISIL or ISIS is doing in um, right now up in Nineveh, uh, actually battling Kurds mm -hmm. in what are essentially Christian areas, that's far away from any Shia uh, power, and so uh, the notion that this is this type of conflict is all at Maliki's doorstep, I think is very wrong. But I think there are many Arabs 
who are not happy with, a, with an Iraq where the Shia are running it. Uh, every other Arab state is Sunni, except for Syria. We'll put aside Syria for a second. So I think the, um, the problem we have is Iraq is the black sheep of the region, and nobody wants them to succeed. Uh, at least, uh, for example, the Saudis have their own concerns about Shia. They don't want to see Shia political power uh, consolidate in, say, the East Province, where most of the Shia live. So no other Arab country is a natural ally of the Iraqis. I guess how, you know, what, what do you see that as the prospect of, of this turning into a, a Sunni-Shia, you know, regional conflagration, like a spillover from Syria? I mean, it seems to be at the early stages of, of going well, that direction. Well, it's, it's already going in that direction, but uh, the Sunnis are greatly outnumber the Shia in the region, mm-hmm. greatly so. Uh, there are substantial Shia populations, places like Bahrain. Um, Kuwait has a lot of Shia, although by no means the majority. So if you look at the overall Arab Middle East, it's dominated by the Sunnis. So the Shia uh, who are present, for example, in these tribal struggles down in Yemen, that's there's a Sunni-Shia dimension there. Uh, the Shia would not be wise to get into a general confrontation with the Sunnis um, and by the way, that has the effect, uh, the overall notion of the sectarian conflict has the effect of bringing Arab Shia closer to Iranian Shia, mm-hmm. which is not in anybody's interest. So um, we have a big problem there now. But I think part of the problem is the fact that the Sunni Arab world has never accepted uh, a, a Shia-led um, Iraq. Uh, so we're, we're running out of time. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, you know, you're, you're here at Denver, the Corbell School. Uh, what are any plans for the future? You think you'll be here for a while? Yeah, uh, just it's finished my here, book. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're uh, moving ahead with this building. Mm-hmm. So What's that? The, you're building a new... Uh, we're building a new uh, international um, school oh, wow. building. Where? Right It'll, here? Um, right here, just right out the window oh, here. Nice. It'll go up five floors. Um, I'll be able to see it from my house. You'll be able to live down the hill. <laughs> it'll have a breathtaking view of uh, the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. Uh, so As does I, your office. I think it will yeah. really do a lot for our um, the school. Um, we're really dedicated to the proposition that um, Denver uh, needs and already has a, a great uh, international um, affairs school. So. Great, uh, and look forward to a book tour, and yeah. I look forward to reading the book. I'm looking at the uh, the galley copy in front of me. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Great, thanks. Well, thank you so much to Ambassador Hill. Uh, and if you've made it to the end, uh, that means you really ought to subscribe on iTunes. It's a free podcast. Please subscribe. Check out UN Dispatch, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.